the Unbillable Hour Community Table, where real lawyers from all around the country with real issues they are dealing with right now meet together virtually to present their questions to Christopher T. Anderson, lawyer and law firm management consultant. New questions every episode, and none of it scripted. The real conversations happen here. Our opening segment centers around a lawyer who wants to build a computer policy for both their in-office and remote employees. So my question is about computer policy. I got one of my attorneys a new laptop. I used to have a tech stipend policy. I recently abandoned that policy because I tried it out with a paralegal and it was a big pain in my tushy. So I said, enough, I'm not going to do that moving forward. And nobody really understood it, despite it was very clearly laid out. (laughs) So now I had to um, upgrade. I used to have a bring your own device policy. Right. But now I don't. And, and, And as the machines need to get upgraded, I'm just transitioning them in due course. So like we used to have um, CPUs. Now I want everyone to have a laptop to be portable. This is the in-house people that are not remote. If you're remote, if you're a fully remote staff member, you have a use your own for now, a use your own device policy. Okay. That may change in the future, but my in-house attorneys, I needed to upgrade their system and I got my attorney, the, um, a laptop, look, the laptop and all the accessories and the docking station and all the things turned out and plus the um, protection policy turned out to be a total of $1,500. So it's not like, but as I grow and as I continue to upgrade this equipment and my managing director has a laptop too, like what now I'm leaving these machines in these people's hands to take with them here, there and everywhere. What do I, what if they drop it? What if they spill coffee on it? You're just, are you going to tell me just too bad, suck it up, just get them a new one? No. I mean, I think as with anything, the employees have an obligation to treat the office property with care, with reasonable care. And shit happens. And so there's insurance for such things, which might be something you want to consider. And the truth is that the incidents of that kind of thing are, are fairly low. What I'd be more concerned about or most concerned about as an attorney and as a law firm, is our obligations for safekeeping under the model, under the professional rules of conduct. That combined with adoption of the ABA model rules regarding competency, specifically a 1.1 regarding technology, because the model rules have added a competency regarding technology component. A lot of states have adopted that and not all have. So you've got, you've got the duty of safekeeping, you've got the duty of competency on technology. And so that means as technology improves, I think we have an obligation to improve how we safe keep. We're not supposed to be Fort Knox. We're not supposed to be James Bond proof. A lot of people get all twisted about, oh, you know, Tom Cruise could come in on on wires from the ceiling and hover over the floor and get into our, you know, that's that's not it. You know, when I've gone into law firms, though, I do kind of like one of the points I'll show them if they have servers is like if their servers are in an unlocked closet, like if I can walk out of your building in three minutes with your server under my arm, or if you're storing the network password on a sticky note on your monitor, like these are not James Bond issues. And to me with laptops, because everybody's going to laptops these days or 
tablets, iPads, other kinds of tablets or, or, you know, various portable things. I think the risks are becoming greater and greater, right? Because a, a, a laptop in the wrong hands is a, you know, you could breach all of your client's confidentiality all at once. So I would not pay so much attention to the coffee being spilled in the laptop. It's going to happen, you know, if you're really worried about it, get insurance um, or self-insured, you know, just whatever. Um, and, you know, if a client, if a uh, employee does it more than once, you know, they, they, you got a problem. Or if there's evidence that they're abusing their equipment, like you, you're going to need to deal with that like you would anything else. If they're kicking holes in their wall or, or writing on the walls uh, in, 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 the, in the office. So my attention would be more focused on not allowing storage of client information on the laptop, um, right? We all live in the cloud now. And from time to time, an attorney might want slash need to store a file. Like, oh, I'm going to court and I don't know if the Wi-Fi will work in court. Okay. I'm going to be on an airplane and I don't want to pay for the Wi-Fi on the airplane and I don't know if it's secure. Okay. But, you know, download what you need and leave the rest in the cloud so that if someone steals your laptop, they've stolen a brick. There's nothing on it. And, uh, and you know, you just replace the laptop because, you know, the, the cost of rebuilding and finding all the information and putting it back on versus the cost of a laptop, it doesn't compare. Like the laptop is dirt cheap compared to the cost of restoring. And so if your laptop doesn't actually have any data on it, then that cost goes down to zero or as close to zero as possible. And, uh, and that's where, like, I think your, your head should be. Um, I know, Rob, you've got some probably some thoughts around uh, employees and equipment and how, you, how those are distributed and what the rules are around that. I do have some thoughts. Thank you. Here are some additional considerations in addition to what Christopher had mentioned. Um, number one, from a risk management point of view, if your remote users, your staff that's remote, are using their own computers, you may be opening up the firm to a little bit of risk and liability. You don't know if they have spyware on the computer, if they're using antivirus, if they're using a firewall. So they may not be protect, protecting your client's confidential data. They be not, right. may not be using a due, you know, due care standard of care. They could possibly be negligent. And that's something we can't control when we let people use their own computer. So one suggestion would be all employees receive a new laptop from the firm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a suggestion. Number two, okay. we can certainly have all employees who receive a laptop sign some type of acknowledgement and agreement form, which would basically delineate the ways in which the computer can be used, for example, business purposes, and cannot be used. Okay, so that would insulate us a little bit. And of course, on our termination checklist, we have to have some type of SOP where we get it back. Warranty and insurance are big considerations. I would add, whatever type of service plan we go with, it has to have on-site service as well, or you're going to be shipping computers around. Keep in mind that the policies we're talking about can be equally applicable to a desktop, a laptop, a mobile phone, and a tablet. Another consideration, backup of the data. As Christopher had mentioned, a lot of users, for various reasons, save stuff locally on the hard drive on their computer. That not only is dangerous, but they may forget to upload it to the, your cloud storage solution, and therefore, it's also not being backed up. So if they have a really important file on their laptop and their laptop drowns, 
That's mm -hmm. it. It's not on your cl cloud server and it's not being backed up. And I would also just be careful to define the SOP for what are they allowed to do in terms of personal use, if anything, with a law firm laptop. Those are some considerations I would uh, throw into the mix. Yeah. And I'm going to add one more. In today's world, there are few and far between attorneys. I used to be one of them, not anymore, who can also be sufficiently expert in all the technology of the laptop, of the network, of the web, of the various web services. I say that because, you know, the time where we just kind of handle our own IT in-house is over. Right. And and I recommend that everybody get, you know, until you're of a size where you can have a full-time IT team and don't delude yourself with like having being able to afford a full one full-time IT person, because even one person cannot be an expert in all the things they need to be. And they can't be everywhere that they need to be all at once. And so, you know, until you can afford your own in-house team. It's important to have an external team um, local to you or to your offices that, because like Rob said, on-site's important, that can handle these things and, comma, any team, you know, this would be a prof not not your Uncle Joe's kid who's home from college, right? We're talking about a real professional team who can also install some level of monitoring software on every single device that you assign to your team. And I'm not talking about spying on what, what, you know, some firms do that, right? Some firms have keystroke uh, watchers and know when the team is working and when they're not working their productivity. And listen, if that's your gig, more power to you. That's not my style. But being able to monitor for malware, being able to monitor for whether things are being stored locally, being able to monitor for performance degradation so that they know something's going wrong with the computer before you know it, that kind of stuff. And of course, the ability then, those, those softwares tend to also have antivirus built in and they tend to have remote access built in so that if the, your team is having problems, they've got a built-in solution for the IT team to be able to jump into that computer. Some of them are even they, the the monitoring software operates at a core level, not the operating system level, or at least not the Windows level, so that even if the machine's locked up, they can still get in and do stuff. And so, and you know, that's that's software beyond my kin and probably beyond yours, but that, that you know, a good IT team that, and what I have found is that good IT teams are not particularly expensive compared to the risks that they help to mitigate. Yeah. Yeah, that's all wonderful. And yes, we have a managed IT local right. um, guy. And that was more for all the other listeners. I know you do. Yeah. But we did. We got this laptop, but it was a brand new out of the box. I got Windows 11 or 12 Pro, whatever the reason is. I'm not even a Windows person. I know. Look at me. But it, because everything's in the cloud, I just downloaded the apps. I logged them in. And then I called my IT people and they remote logged in and did all their fancy software, security software. And they can log in now. They're, it's running in the background all the time. Right. So they log in and um, any any issues, they have a help desk uh, with hard equipment or soft equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I forgot to mention the last thing is that, that this, you know, the software that can be put on the computer can also be tracking software. Um, and again, it can be at a deep core level. So it's really hard to get out 
Um, so at any time, any if that were to be stolen, any time it it, it's opened, like it's basically advertising its location. But yeah, your question was about your policy about you know damage and that kind of thing. I think what Rob said is the, really the way to do it. Just decide what you want that policy to be, and have them sign for it. I would just be not overly onerous. Like you know, if you get a small scratch on it, you're going to pay. Like you know, reasonable wear and tear accepted. You know, but the policy should be both towards theft, and I think Rob made a good point that I wasn't making, which is also dropping it in a swimming pool, right? Just like what would be lost if you dropped it in a swimming pool? And the answer should be, you know, six hundred fifty dollars for a Windows machine or eleven thirteen hundred dollars for a Mac. That's what should be lost, but no data, nothing, nothing irreplaceable. Okay. Really, the bottom line is, don't be so concerned about the equipment per se. Be concerned what's on the equipment. Yeah, I think, you know, in today's day and age, that is absolutely true. And if they lose it or they drop, not lose it, I can shut it down. It's, you know, whatever. If they drop it in a pool or spill coffee on it or dent it all up, the next one won't be so expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it happens. You know, I remember I, I was once working with a colleague and um, was not particularly paying attention, would poured them a beverage. And instead of pouring it in their glass, poured it straight into their keyboard. You know, it, it, it happens. How many pours were you on? Just first pour, first pour. Yeah, I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it you get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Nearly 80% of people search for lawyers online. They visit websites and check reviews. If your site doesn't appear in the top search results or it presents poorly, you risk losing clients. That's why you must know how your firm stacks up on Google against the competition. See how your reviews impact clients' decisions and how you can get better results from your site. Get an unbiased marketing performance report in under a minute right now at Grow Law Firm. And that's growlawfirm.com slash unbillable. Once again, growlawfirm.com slash unbillable. For our next segment, an attorney wants to solve how to effectively split tasks among two admins. I think the last couple of times we were talking about me being in a cash crunch and trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah. I'm slowly climbing out of that cash crunch, but I have to pay so many people back. Mom, husband, <laughs> I don't want to be indebted to them. So we talked about hiring someone. I currently have a part-time legal assistant who handles um, my social security appeals and new applications and talks to those clients. He only works Monday, Wednesday, and Friday pay him $25 an hour. And every time a team member goes to transfer a call to him, he never answers. Never. So the clients are frustrated that he's not answering their calls. Again, he was my manager for about four or five years at Social Security. He's retired. So I think that has a lot to do with, you know, he can kind of come and go as he pleases. So I reached out to another young lady who I mentored at Social Security. She resigned in January of this year. I'm in a cash crunch, but I felt the need to bring her on. She started this week and she was able to get in and 
you know, we showed her the software. I set her up with the training for the software. But if a team member transfers a call to her, she can answer any question that that social security claimant has. I had spoken with my old manager about, you know, hey, I'm hiring. You know, is this something you're still interested in? Because, you know, she's going to work full time. She's going to work five days a week and she's coming in. He works three days remote. He was like, no, I think, you know, I want to stay. I like this. I think the two of us can really, you know, take Social Security off your hand. You only need to touch it when it's time to go to hearing. Uh, Yeah, it sounds great. But if you're not answering phone calls, why should I keep you on? If we're continuing to transfer calls to you and there are, you know, a couple of days delay for you to get back to the client's. I'm just thinking, should I keep him on or should I? Well, is is that his only job or is he crunching the numbers and getting the paperwork done and getting these claims set up in an excellent way? That, that's what he's supposed to be doing. Yes. So who cares if he doesn't answer the phone? Okay. He's going to talk to the clients. Why? Because he needs to answer the questions or they're going to say, oh, I'm going to terminate your representation. I can't get anybody on the phone. Nobody will answer my questions. Right. But now they can get this other person on the phone. So I'm just saying, can you bifurcate the job and have someone who can excellently produce the work and just have all the calls routed to her if you've got the volume for, and if she's also crunching, you know, is this going to increase your volume? Are you going to be able to take on more cases? You know, if you've only got enough to keep her busy, then you, then I I mean, it's very clear to me, you let this guy go. But if, but if this expands your capacity, you can take on more work, make more money. And like, sometimes you just have to. If an employee, if a worker, if an attorney has an area of excellence and they can be productive in that area of excellence, then let them do that and keep the other stuff away from them. I've had lots of associates that I've locked in back closets that I don't let talk to anybody, but you know, who, uh, who are grinders, they just grind it out and I'm happy to have them. And it, does that put the, the load on other people to be minders and charismatic and 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 be you know client inter, client facing sure it does but if you've got both and they're, they're complementary then do it and if they're not complementary if you know if this puts her on the phones and she's not doing her best area of work because he's pushing all the calls off into her then it's not working then you got to cut him but if there's a way where he can be the grinder and she can be the car- the 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 face of the firm the front man you know, that may be a best of both worlds. If it if it increases your capacity and gives you more production so you can pay both of them and make a profit on both of them. Okay. Yeah. Like the, the big challenge I find with with uh you know managing people sometimes is trying to force them into what your picture of an excellent person is rather than finding the excellence that they've got and working that into your team. So I guess one of the options I need to do is just to get them both in and sit down and see how we can structure, whereas, yes, he will be that grinder handling the new claims and the appeals and what she's doing. And then you have to ask yourself, can I generate enough business to, to keep them both busy and have them both pro- profitably producing? Okay. Rob, any uh, thoughts on top of that? No, the only thing I'd add is, you know, obviously it's critical that the bones get answered, period. So that's number one. We could talk about all these other facts. The bone needs to be picked up. Number two, I would study the call volume. How many calls are coming in? What's the average duration of the call? And can one person typically handle that? Also, what happens when she's on the phone and another call comes in? Number one, how often does that happen? And number two, 
where does that call go? It can't not be answered. Um, I would I agree with Chris that for certain employees, we do workarounds because they have skills that are valued and we carve out niches for them and we kind of give them a little bit of a free pass because they're still providing value to the firm. And finally, I'd want to know if this system will be scalable. So at what point would you have to hire someone else to answer phones? Then you'd have three people in that department. And would that situation be okay for you? Or would you hire someone who takes calls and terminate the part-time assistant? So think about that as well. Not necessarily how it exists today, but how it's going to exist tomorrow with a little bit of increased call volume. Okay. Gives me something to think about. Thank you. Yeah, because I'm just thinking a grinder on Social Security that you're paying. I'm saying I, I'm just thinking in my head, like if you've got this guy grinding out Social Security part time and you're paying him 25 an hour, that is mad profitable. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 where I come from with that. Not, you know, just like just like I've just got a little money machine back there. Let me let him run. Find out how TimeSolve fits your firm with six different ways to track time. Surely one will fit, even on the go, or quickly estimate flat fee projects. Batch payments for hundreds of invoices at once with TimeSolve Pay. Getting paid quickly is a great fit. And TimeSolve fits with the other tools you use QuickBooks, LawPay, NetDocuments, LawRuler, Microsoft, all just plug in. Try TimeSolve free. Get a $100 Amazon gift card when you sign up. TimeSolve.com. Law Clerk's nationwide network of talented freelance lawyers is trusted by thousands of law firms. Solo attorneys and firms can get help with project-based work and also ongoing work via a subscription. Sign up is free and there are no monthly fees. You only pay when you delegate work. Plus, Law Clerk has a new app for your mobile device to help you manage the work you've delegated while you're on the go. Be sure to use referral code UNBILLABLE when you sign up at lawclerk.legal. In our final segment, a lawyer wants to know how much time to give a new hire before deciding whether to keep or fire them. We are rebuilding our sales department. We have a new sales manager as well as three new intake specialists. The sales manager does consults and one of the intake specialists is in a hybrid position that does consults. When you have new people, how much time do you give them before making the go, no-go decisions? Particularly new people in sales? Right. They're previous sales professionals, but they're new in our firm. I have a different answer between the go and the no-go. <laughs> uh, because to me, those are two very different answers. Go is the easier one, right? You've, you'll have your basic training that you want to deliver because so that you know that your team has received the information that you want to provide to them about brand about how we treat our prospective clients, about what what where our goals are for the experience that they have. Um, and we wanna make sure that we deliver on those things. Then go becomes when the, you know, you give them, you give them some at bats and where their performance is equaling what you expect or is equaling a milestone that you expected them to reach. That's your go decision. The harder one is the no-go decision is when they're not quite reaching that. How much you know, additional training, how much rope do you give them, how much time do you give before you say this is not going to work? 
to me, that's a little bit more art than science is because you have to, you have to keep asking yourself, are they making progress towards the goal? Do I believe they're going to reach it within a reasonable amount of time? For me, you know, 60 days is kind of the outside of like, that's, if they're not really getting close by then, then they're not going to make it. Um, but you know, Rob's worked with a lot of sales teams too and helped to build a lot of great sales infrastructure. So I'd love for him to pop in on this. Typically for salespeople, if you brought on someone who has pretty good sales experience, I would get them on the phone probably within a month. I would make sure I'm monitoring those calls and looking at their performance. For someone who is experienced in sales, it really should just be a matter of learning your product or service and how you guys do sales. But the actual art of sales should already be there and they shouldn't have to be trained on that. So that's a long-winded way of saying if someone has pretty good experience and you bring them on your sales team, I would get them on the phone within a month. And within six weeks, uh, maybe seven weeks, eight weeks tops, um, I would make the yay or nay decision. Okay. Does that answer what you were asking? Yeah. So about 60 days. Yeah, on the phone. So what Rob was saying, Rob and I said slightly different answers, but really towards the same thing. He's like, get them on on the phones within a month. So as soon as you're you're giving them some dry runs, some training, you're getting some feedback from them sooner if you can, in my opinion. And and but you know within a month for sure. And then you start assessing whether they're performing to spec. And obviously, you know. If they don't close at 65% in the first three days, it's not time to kick them to the curb yet, right? You're looking for, you're looking for constant improvement um, over time. And as long as you're seeing that improvement and you believe it's headed towards your target, you keep going. And if, if they stall out or start to go back down before they hit that target, then, then that's when it's time to call the game. You know, Give them some remedial training, redirect them maybe once, maybe twice, and if they don't don't resume their path towards the goal that you have evidence to believe is a reasonable goal, then it's time to consider whether they're not going to make it. Okay. The conversion rate of your peers and your colleagues and the consultants and anybody else who tells you what your conversion rate should be is worth about nothing because nobody's in your market. Nobody is selling your exact product. Nobody has the marketing that you have. Nobody else has all these other things. So if you have a hypothesis as to what your conversion rate should be, it should be based on what somebody else in your business has been able to achieve under, the, under similar circumstances, someone who you think did a great job. That person could be you, but also, like I've warned owners, don't expect anybody to ever close the way you do. It's unlikely. Um, if you're good, if you suck, then maybe they'll do better. But uh, you know, most, most business owners are pretty good closers, and, and that would not be the benchmark I set. Right. So, you know, some people might come out, I've heard people come out and say like 65% is good. And some people come out and say 35% is good. And then people say, which one's right? And I'm like, they're both right. Or they're both wrong. I don't know. Right. Because I don't, I haven't walked in their moccasins. I haven't sold in their business, in their market, with their clients, with their marketing, in their products. And so, you know, I would need to learn what's good in that market. So it needs to be evidence-based, not what somebody else told you is a good number. Because those are dangerous. Right. All right. That brings us to the top of the hour. So I'm going to wrap it here. Just reminding all our listeners that you can catch the Unbillable Hour community table. You can come on it live, I should say, uh, on the third Thursdays at three o'clock, 12 o'clock Pacific. And of course, you can listen on your favorite podcast channel. Uh, we are, we are, we're presented by the Legal Talk Network. And you can catch us on iTunes or wherever you catch your podcasts. 
until then, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. This has been the Unbillable Hour Community Table on the Legal Talk Network. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app.